Welcome to Economics Amplified, a podcast where we talk about insights on today's biggest economic issues being tackled by researchers at UChicago's Becker Freeman Institute. Richard Evans is a senior fellow in computational social science at the University of Chicago and a fellow here at the Institute. Evans sees immense potential in the methods, practices, and workflows that computer engineers have implemented in their own discipline, and is working to bring those skills into Chicago economics through his role both here at the Institute and via the Master's in Computational Social Science. Evans spoke to us about how we can expect to see computation shape different aspects of economic study, as well as the ways that computer scientists and software engineers can teach economists how to work smarter. Computation in economics really, I think right now, most of the work is advancing kind of our data capabilities, uh, which is exactly like you mentioned. It's uh, allowing us to chew through bigger data sets, manipulate better data sets. Um, On that front, there are advances happening that are changing that area, which have to do with machine learning, which have to do with visualization. So network graphs, we have to have better visualization tools for uh, this giant data. Networks seem to be more important. Um, Machine learning techniques, I think, um, will replace a lot of the basic regression statistical techniques that have been so common in econometrics and economics. But then the last thing you mentioned is kind of where I fit in, which is computational power really allows us to solve bigger models. And these models, especially in macroeconomics, we try to model something as complex as the macroeconomy where you have millions of different types of people and and thousands of different types of firms and industries and all this heterogeneity. And then we're trying to model how those interact and build up to macroeconomic variables that you and I face, like the interest rates or wages. I mean, just thinking about that, it's such a complex system, and uh, mathematically, we can write those systems down, but they're so complex that um, until recently, we haven't really been able to solve them. So a lot of what I do is uh, build large macroeconomic models and then leverage the new computational power that we have to solve those models. Rick thinks of problems of unique complexity, like the tax code as a prime opportunity for computational models to add clarity to discussion and study of economic impact. And when you think about the tax code, it's such a lumpy thing. Think about just like the marginal tax rates that you and I face. There are all these jumps and drops depending on what exemptions you declare or what income bracket you're in. And they're kind of discrete jumps. Those things present problems when you're trying to find out the optimal tax level or even the optimal choices that you and I should make. These lumps create in math what we call non-convexities and and, uh, for optimization those are really difficult. So one thing I've done with some co-authors is um, use big data techniques and just create a huge database of the universe of policies and responses that people can make. It's kind of like a brute force method of finding the solution. and kind of look for frontiers of good responses in that big database. So create something that's terabytes of data. Uh, And then where it looks like the optimal answers might live, we create more data points in that area or refine this database. And um, we end up being able to get some optimal tax results that um, 
They both fit with the previous data, but they expand our ability to look at richer, more realistic systems. So one question we might answer is, what's the optimal sales tax schedule on different types of goods like services, um, technology, uh, and then what's the effect of exempting certain classes of goods like uh, services or medical or, or legal um, or consulting services which currently don't face any sales tax? Um, that's one question. The other question we're asking is what's the optimal schedule of marginal tax rates if you're limited to seven different marginal tax rates on different brackets of income? Turns out those are both really hard problems that uh, we can solve with these big data methods. This ability to chew on the problem that would be impossible to solve by hand makes a strong case for computational models playing an important role in the future of economic theory. There's this beautiful back and forth between theory and computation. And this, I've been hosting a computational economics conference for the last four years uh, in Park City, Utah. And we've had some really fantastic presenters and keynote speakers and one thing that keeps coming up both in my own work and anecdotally from these other economists that I interact with is that computation can actually help us create better theor theoretical models or learn what things we can prove analytically about our theory models as well as the theory helping us uh, kind of indicating how to compute the solutions to our models. So just a couple of examples. Uh, let's say you write down a model and I, I'm trying to prove that there's actually a solution to this model. I'm trying to do that with, with uh, analysis, you know, pencil and paper. And I can't prove that the solution exists. I might compute a solution uh, and see kind of where it exists, if there are multiple solutions. If the computational um, approach breaks, that might even be instructive as to some things with the theory. So that actually, the computation can actually help us with the mathematics and the analysis of the models and, and figuring out, kind of helping us climb inside those models and see what this new universe that we've built looks like. And the other way um, is really productive as well. That is, if I'm trying to compute a model and it won't solve, I often have to go back to the theory and look at uh, what are the properties of the model that suggest a computational strategy for solving the model. So um, in terms of theoretical models, both computation and mathematical theory are both very productive complements to each other. And then um, another part of what you were asking is about um, just slicing the data. So there are some nice approaches to data, especially complex systems, where machine learning techniques can actually go in and in an unsupervised way just kind of tease out what are some of the relationships between variables in the data. Uh, things that for kind of the human brain would be impossible to uh, kind of sift through that level of complexity. Those um, initial runs through the data with this, these unsupervised approaches can actually suggest theoretical channels and how to build models to actually look at this data. Um, and then the other approach is to build a theory and then take it to the data and see how the theory um, allows us to interpret the data. But in both those examples, 
it's really productive to go from both directions, from data to theory, from theory to data, from computation to theory, and theory to computation. It's I love computers. I love doing math and building economic models. Um, this is a really happy place for me. Evans thinks that economists have a lot more to learn from computer scientists than just how to harness computation in their models. He's a strong proponent of looking at the efficiencies that software engineers have created in the course of doing their work and integrating them into the study of and collaborating within the field of economics. There has been a push in recent years at the top journals to make sure that everybody publishes their code uh, and their data. Right, so replicability of research is really important just for any academic inquiry. Uh, this openness of research, um, you don't, in the worst case scenario, you don't want people faking their results, so you want to be able to replicate it. But in, in the best case scenario, we make honest mistakes. There can be errors in our code that we don't know about. Um, and we do our best through the referee process to, um, to uh, check everything, but but there are there are probably a lot of errors in papers that we still don't know about just because they haven't been replicated. So one very first step in this openness is to publish your code and your data set that you're using so it can be replicated. That's not enough. So open source, the, the idea behind open sourcing and using GitHub is um, those are two separate things. Let me take them in turn. Open sourcing your code and methods of data means that not only is it available um, for others to look at, but it's also um, well-commented code so that someone from the outside can read it and actually understand it. It's very, if you look at other people's code, sometimes it's, it's impossible to read. So principles like writing your code so that it's modular, that is different pieces are separated and um, interact logically. There's got to be good comments inside of the code. And then you mentioned GitHub, Git and GitHub. Those are really powerful tools, not only for making code available, but for collaborating. I mean, these are um, uh, collaboration workflows that are very advanced. Um, GitHub tracks everything that anybody's contributed to a project. So if you go to an open source project, you can look at exactly who has contributed to it and exactly what they contributed. In the tech industry, they don't even use resumes anymore. People just send you their GitHub handle and you look at their GitHub page and you can see their code and what projects they can contributed to. I think that is a really powerful idea for economic that, uh, and also the collaboration that it fosters. If I can get attribution for collaborating on a project um, that someone else is working on, I can both help them and help me at the same time. As an academic, uh, I get a lot of credit for the papers that I publish. I think it would be really valuable if we also get credit for the code that we contribute to and improve. And GitHub is a really strong tool for doing that. By embracing these tools in his own work and encouraging his colleagues to do the same, Evans is creating a unique opportunity for his students to contribute to economic modeling with their professors in a hands-on way. By accepting student pull requests, a mechanism in GitHub that allows anyone to submit revisions to a collaborative online code repository. In this new program that I'm a part of uh, at Chicago, the Masters in Computational Social Science, I mean, this is something we want our students to be doing. We want them to be learning the tools, getting involved in these open communities, contributing to projects, and, and building up their 
at cachet in this area. And then think it. So we've talked about economic research. Think about the importance of this open source principle in policy. So um, uh, when any fiscal legislation comes through Congress, it, uh, it, it, it has to be scored or a revenue estimate is what it's called where it has to be scored by the Joint Committee on Taxation. So a revenue estimate means any new legislation, the Joint Committee on Taxation or JCT has to estimate what is going to be the change in government revenues from this new policy. And so how in the world do you do that? I mean, that's really a macroeconomic question. And they have these models, these economic models to do that, but they're proprietary. And, and I don't want to be hard on the JCT. They've got some good reasons for those being proprietary. But having built models similar to these, I know there are hundreds if not thousands of parameters and economic assumptions in these models to which the results of these models are sensitive, right? So it's, if it's a proprietary model, it's very hard to test or replicate or do sensitivity analysis as to whether the government revenues that are projected from a certain policy, whether that's a good estimate or not. So think about um, presidential campaigns right now. You've got Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. They both have tax plans. Someone comes out and says, candidate X's tax plan is going to cost a trillion dollars over 10 years or is going to be revenue neutral over the next three years. Those are estimates that are coming from economic models. And in all cases, except for the ones that I'm working on, those are closed proprietary models. So there's no way to, for me to check if those estimates are good or if they're sensitive to certain assumptions. And uh, those estimates have a big impact on which candidate you or I vote for. And then on an everyday basis, the Joint Committee on Taxation is giving these estimates to policymakers for any proposed legislation that comes through Congress. So one thing we're working on is not only for academic research, making our uh, work open source, but creating economic models for evaluating fiscal policy that are open source. People can look at all the assumptions. People can take those models and change the assumptions. And, um, and then one step further we're taking it is we're building web applications so that non-experts can manipulate these models and, and run their own tests of, of what would be the effect of a certain policy. Evan says that working directly with software engineers on consumer-facing work for TaxBrain, an interactive online model of how the tax code can be shaped by different policy decisions, taught him just how far economists have to go when it comes to programming. Oh man, it's amazing. to. Uh... To actually work with developers has increased the quality of my code so much. I mean, a lot of us in economics, uh, we're somewhat self-taught. I mean, rarely have any of us, uh, actually this isn't as true anymore, but of, of kind of the old guard, rarely have any of us taken an actual computer science class where you, they teach you really how to code. And, and to work with developers, um, they're just so good at using the most efficient functions within whatever um, programming language you're working. And, um, and they're also really good at workflow. I mean, this, this collaborative Git workflow is something that we've taken directly from the developing industry. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and further, so we partnered with this company in Austin, Texas, Continuum Analytics. And they have built kind of the most popular Python stack. It's called Anaconda. It's the most popular kind of distribution of Python with libraries. And Python's a programming language. Uh, it's fairly popular. Um, these guys, we've used these guys to build the front end for the web app for the economic models that we're building. However, one thing they've done, which I think is beautiful, is they've made the code for the web app open source so that anybody could take this code and uh, um, and build their own web apps and it's got all the links with Amazon web services so you can do your computing in the cloud um, it, it's really a beautiful thing that's actually beyond my expertise but given that the code is out there it's something that I could learn if I took the time to do it Evans is working hard to get colleagues to move their work into more close alignment with the computer science way of doing things. What are his specific goals? I want to reach economists with this open source idea. There are, there are a number of groups that are doing this. I can think of a group at NYU running this website called quanticon.net. They're building kind of open lectures and corresponding computational code for macroeconomic methods. There's a group at Johns Hopkins run by Chris Carroll trying to build open source economic models. Um, there's a group in Europe with a bunch of, they're called New Keynesian models that have made the source code open. Um, I, I want to expand the use of open models um, as well as this Git and GitHub form of collaboration because I think it will allow uh, more collaboration on research and, and faster advancing of the industry. So that's one thing among the economists. Um, Two, I would like to expand this beyond economists and see this happen in other fields. I think Chicago is actually an ideal place to do that, just given the, the high quality of the researchers in areas like political science and sociology. Um, I'm just referring to the social sciences here, um, psychology, anthropology. Um, but I'd like to see this, uh, this approach of open source and collaboration expand. Um, in other fields, policy analysis, we're starting to see it um, get noticed. So I want to see it grow in analysis. I mean, imagine, this is a very extreme case, but imagine if the process of a bill going through Congress were open source, where any lobbyist or average Joe could submit a pull request and we want this in the bill, and then the congressman or the, the committee can decide whether to merge it in or not. There would be so much less work done behind closed doors, there'll be more transparency. I mean, this is a pretty broad philosophy that kind of democratizes whatever field you're working in. I, I don't know that that's anything we'll see in our lifetimes, but the idea is beautiful. And I think transparency and openness are pretty key principles for democracy. And, and in economics, we're trying to democratize economics. We're also trying to uh, bring people from different fields together. In my work, it's mathematicians and computer scientists and policy analysts and economists, but um, that circle can get a lot more broad. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. Music for this episode came from Boris Mann 2, whom you can listen to on SoundCloud, and Auscultation, whom you can find on Bandcamp.
The show is produced with help from Liz Braun and Tony Shears and is edited by Mark Rickers. That's me. The Becker Freeman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.